Hey, it's Sarah here. With the Alberta election heating up, we're hearing a lot about pipelines. So I thought it was time we revisited Aaron Reynolds' conversation with environmental history professor Sean Courage, outlining the history and significance of pipelines in Canada. Enjoy. For Canadians, paying with Interact Debit is synonymous with access to your own money. In 2018, Canadians made over 6 billion Interact Debit transactions, the equivalent of 160 per person. Interact Debit is accepted at nearly 500,000 businesses across Canada and growing. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. I like to think that I'm an intelligent guy, but I know more about the construction of Blofeld's underground volcano layer than I do about the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. And that's kind of a problem. And so that's why I'm inviting really intelligent people to explain things to me like I'm five. It feels like every time I see a headline about a pipeline, it is either a celebration of the tremendous achievement of having constructed one or making the agreements to construct one, or uh, someone protesting the construction or operation of a pipeline. There seems to be no middle ground. And for such a polarizing issue, it's surprising to me that I know so little about how pipelines work. To help me with that today, I have Sean Courage, an associate professor of Canadian and environmental history at York University. Thanks for joining me. Hello, thanks for inviting me. Uh, so I have the most simple and basic question about pipelines, which is what moves by pipeline? Because I was thinking about it, I'm thinking in my head it's a, it's a tube and like something that's like liquid or something like that goes in it and it's pushed <laughs> to another place or something like that. Uh, but I mean, we don't move milk by pipeline. Uh, no, not by long distance pipeline, uh, but I'm, I'm not going to talk about milk. I'll talk about what, what's in energy pipelines. <laughs> yeah. Pipelines carry all kinds of things from okay. water to crude oil to diluted bitumen to um, natural gas. Okay. Uh, so when we're thinking about energy pipelines in Canada today, the primary um, products that are shipped by pipeline are liquid hydrocarbons, and that's a whole range of liquefi- liquefied uh, petrochemical products from okay. raw crude oil, diluted bitumen, to uh, fuel additives, to gasoline and jet fuel can be shipped by pipeline. But pipelines can also ship uh, condensed gases as well as okay. liquid hydrocarbons. So we have large trunk natural gas pipelines in Canada that go across the country. Um, and so we can ship liquefied versions of hydrocarbon energy and natural gas or gasified versions of hydrocarbon energy. Okay. And so it's both like the the raw materials for production of things like gasoline and then gasoline itself, uh, they ship by, yeah. by pipeline? So pipelines ship both the raw materials for energy pr- uh, production as well as refined materials. Okay. So okay. if we think about a long distance trunk pipeline like uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline that ships primarily crude oil and diluted bitumen which are raw um, fuel sources. Um, but 
At a refinery, there are all kinds of smaller pipelines that will ship refined products, and there are refined product pipelines that ship those products over long distances as well. Holy moly, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things, actually, before we started recording, we were talking about it briefly, uh, because uh, uh, Sarah, our producer, had asked about, uh, are we over a pipeline right now? And you had said, well, maybe, you know, um, small things for carrying natural gas to homes and for heating and so on and so on. Right, so we're sitting in downtown Toronto on the west side of the city. There isn't a large trunk pipeline that runs underneath this part of Toronto, mm. but there would be dozens of small feeder pipelines to condominiums and houses for natural gas. Right. And so then the trunk pipeline is just the is like the big one to get it from one large place to another large place? Yeah, they primarily ship from points of production of okay. uh, hydrocarbons to refineries. So okay. the large ones that we talk about in the news today, like Trans Mountain or Enbridge's pipelines, are trunk pipelines that travel from parts of Alberta, where we are harvesting or producing crude oil and bitumen, and right. they ship them to refineries in different parts of Canada and the United States, or to ports where they are shipped overseas to refineries in other parts right. of the world. Okay. And and so I actually, I wanted to ask about that, um, because uh, we ship those things by, uh, by uh, ocean, uh, you know, in a tanker. In Canada... Do are there alternates to pipelines? Like, are there other ways to move those raw materials? So there have been historically a variety of ways that let's take crude oil as an yeah. example. Crude oil uh, has been shipped. So at the beginning or the advent of the modern oil industry in North America, crude oil was shipped by barrels, which is where we get the term barrel of oil. Okay, that makes so sense. So literally yeah. wooden barrels. Uh, of oil, and um, in Pennsylvania, which is North America's first uh, oil boom, center of North America's first oil boom, cr uh, crude oil barrels would be shipped by raft on rivers. Oh, okay. So you would, and that yeah, would be the barrels. fastest way of okay. shipping it to market. It would be drawn by horses on wagons to rafts to be put onto rivers and then sent down river to cities at the mouths of rivers where there are refineries. Okay. And as you can imagine, that system of Moving oil produced a lot of leaks because the barrels weren't 100% right. watertight, yeah. and rafts on rivers were prone to flipping and losing right. barrels into the rivers. Into the, okay. Um, okay. Even barrels of oil being pulled by wagon on horses right. could be prone to falling off those off those wagons. And today, do we see anything like that as alternate methods, or is it primarily pipelines for, like... The largest volume of oil... Uh, let's see two primary methods of shipping oil today I'll say three <laughs> three primary methods of shipping oil today include tankers mm -hmm. via transoceanic shipping pipelines um, for terrestrial ba terrestrial based shipping and trains Okay, uh, and those for most of the 20th century have been the primary or at least the second half of the 20th yeah. century the primary yeah. ways we move oil I have definitely seen like a tanker car on yes. a train. Uh, yeah. I grew up building model trains with my dad. Uh, we had uh, a, an elaborate model of just like a train filled with tanker cars. Mm -hmm. So you know those are those are uh, those are things I remember from my childhood. Although I don't know that I have seen them as much lately. Mm -hmm. Like is that is there a shift from one to the other, or are they still? No, I mean, a lot of oil is still shipped by rail today. Um, I'd have to double check for sure, but um, typically speaking, the very largest volume of liquid hydrocarbon products, we're just talking about that, not natural gas, yeah. um, are shipped by pipeline. Okay. Um, and uh, rail and uh, tankers um, maybe get close, but 
uh, I would say terrestrially rail does not ship as much as uh, as a pipeline. As pipeline. Though that started to change uh, with North Dakota's oil boom in the recent years. Okay. So North Dakota isn't as interconnected via pipelines uh, to refineries, right. and so they use trains. They use trains, um, okay. or have increasingly used trains to okay. ship oil. And is there like a, a clear advantage of a pipeline over a train? Pipeline can ship a lot more oil than a train. Okay. Um, like in my. In some, in some cases, the scale of the volume of oil that can be shipped via a trunk pipeline versus a train is mm. a, a massive margin of difference. So comparing the two is a bit of a false dichotomy because you would have to run twinned or triple-decker trains to match right, the volume match of oil volume that okay. a large diameter pipeline uh, could ship. That makes sense. And so then in production, the train would become the bottleneck for... For shipment to refineries, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, how... Does a pipeline work? <laughs> I would encourage you to speak to a pipeline engineer, okay. <laughs> uh, which I did a couple of years ago. So I'm not an engineer; I'm a historian. Um, obviously, these are complicated envirotechnical systems, but some of the basics of the engineering of a pipeline are more or less what you might imagine. They are metal tubes that liquids and gases are transmitted through. Mm -hmm combines both gravity and pumping to move the product through the pipeline system. Okay. And at the very basic sense, that's how these things work. So when Canada's first transcontinental trunk oil pipelines were built, they're designed to maximize the amount of fall or gravity that can pull the liquid through the pipeline. Right. Okay. And where gravity can't do the job, like getting across the Rocky Mountains, in the case of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, um, and where you need to accelerate the speed of the liquid that's moving through the pipeline, you add pumps to okay. it. Um, and those pumps used to be powered by diesel, then they were later powered um, by electric uh, uh, pumps, which could be powered by anything from coal-fired electricity to hydropower. Okay. Um, and do we, like, for those big trunk pipelines, like, are those things that are underground, or are those things that we see if we, like, went out to where they are? So the really long ones yeah. have, uh, have parts of the pipeline that are underground and parts of the pipeline that are above ground. Mm -hmm. Whenever pipeline needs to have accelerated flow and a pump station is constructed, the pipeline comes up. Right, uh, makes sense. Out of the ground yeah. uh, for the pumping facilities and then back in um, to maintain a kind of steady grade or to maximize the amount of fall on a pipeline. Mm -hmm. You might have a segment that's above ground or if you need to make a crossing of a valley or a river, um, it might be above ground. So um, there are parts where pipelines will travel underneath rivers. There are parts where pipelines will go across rivers on a okay. bridge. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you'll see a mix of the two. Uh, when did Canada first get a pipeline? Like, what was Canada's uh, first the, pipeline? Uh, so Canada's first pipelines were built in southern Ontario in the late 19th century. So Canada's first oil boom happens in the uh, region around Sarnia and Petrolia. Oh, okay. Uh, and some of the first pipelines are built there. 19th century pipelines tended to be short um, and small diameter. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, engineers didn't have welding technology, so pipelines were um, segments of pipelines were put together by threading. Oh, so you twist them yeah, in, yeah, together yeah, and yeah. threading. So those leaked a lot. So you would yeah. 
wouldn't be able to uh, string a pipeline together uh, and lay a pipeline that would cover thousands of kilometers um, with that technology. That doesn't develop until the mid-20th century, and that's when Canada, or pipeline corporations, start building long-distance trunk pipelines in Canada for both natural gas and liquid hydrocarbons, primarily so crude oil. around the middle of the 20th yeah, century? Yeah, so the first major long-distance trunk pipeline, the first segments of it start to be built in 1950, or they start to open in 1950, and it's a pipeline that goes from Edmonton to Regina, Got the interprovincial okay. pipeline. That pipeline expanded over the course of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and by the mid-1970s, that pipeline reached from Edmonton to Montreal, as well as spur lines that connected to Buffalo, Chicago, and some other parts of the United wow, States. Wow, okay. So, that's, so it was huge. At a yeah. certain point, it was the largest oil pipeline in the world. And is there a bigger one now? Yeah, there are larger oil pipelines in uh, the Russian Federation okay. and maybe some parts of the Middle East, but that interprovincial pipeline system still exists. It's enormous. It's Canada's largest oil pipeline. It has four parallel lines in Western Canada. Uh, it's increased in diameter more than threefold in the last 50 years. So these pipelines started off as 12 diameter pipelines. Mm -hmm. I think they now go as high as 48 inch diameter wow. pipelines. So these okay. are huge, yeah. huge pipelines, and there's four of them. And they carry different side. products. So that's called uh, twinning or looping, okay. uh, which can increase the flow uh, on a pipeline system. Fantastic. And um, uh, what else do we have now? Like, we have that one. Oh, Are yeah. there other... There's lots. Yeah. So um, there, the two regulators in Canada that oversee safety and environmental regulation, engineering regulation on energy pipelines in Canada are the National Energy Board, okay. which regulates any pipelines that cross interprovincial or international borders. Okay. And then the next largest regulator is the Alberta Energy Regulator, and all the provinces regulate pipelines that travel only within their borders. British Columbia has one. Alberta has one. Right. Alberta's is the biggest. It's the biggest in the country because they have the biggest Makes sense. system have, of yeah. pipelines. So the federally regulated pipelines, uh, the National Energy Board estimates them to be about 73,000 kilometers wow. of pipeline. Okay. And in Alberta, it's over 400,000 kilometers of pipeline. And do we have anything that goes like from one coast to the other? Do we have anything that goes that far? Yeah, not a single pipeline system, though. So the interprovincial still travels from Edmonton to Montreal, but okay. it doesn't flow continuously in one direction. In the 1990s, the uh, interprovincial's extension from Ontario to Montreal was reversed. So it used to flow from west to east, and okay. the flow was reversed east to west to make it an import pipeline from the port of Montreal. Okay, okay. Right, and then so things are coming in by... By in a tanker, yes, into so, Montreal and then coming on that pipeline. It's okay. Yeah, it, so it, Canada it. has a divided oil market. Mm -hmm. um, roughly speaking, to the east of the Ottawa Valley, oil is imported from overseas, primarily from the Middle East and Venezuela, and west of the Ottawa Valley, Canadians primarily consume domestic oil from Alberta. Um, so in the 1990s, the it's called Line Nine extension of the interprovincial pipeline was reversed to turn it into an import pipeline okay. to bring oil in from overseas uh, to refineries in central Canada. And is that just the um, uh, like the the financial part of it? Is it cheaper than to move it by tanker than by pipeline in that direction? Yes. Is that? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, yeah, a lot of the decisions about which parts of the country would consume which oil is driven yeah. by the price of oil. So the cost of shipping oil from Alberta to central Canada uh, for much of the second half of the 20th century was 
not prohibitively expensive, but more expensive than bringing than oil in from overseas. Okay. So it made more sense economically for Maritimers and Quebecers to consume Venezuelan oil than Albertan oil. Okay. Okay. So th- and that's interesting because that's both the cost of the oil itself and then the cost of shipping and then adding that all up and figuring out which is the... Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I can't... Like, when I think about the idea of a pipeline... Like, once it's constructed, are there a lot of operating costs on a pipeline? I mean, there's maintenance. Yeah, so if you think about, if a pipeline was driven only by gravity, the operating yep. costs would be considerably lower. Right, right, but right, right. there's an energy cost to running pipelines. You right, have to burn right. oil to move oil, at least uh, when these pipelines are first right. built. Um, when they're pumping stations are converted to electricity, then you're you know burning coal or you're running hydroelectricity or in some cases natural gas, and that reduces the energy cost. But pipelines have energy inputs to begin with. Right. And you've got labor costs in terms of maintenance, safety. Um, what other costs would you incur with uh, pipeline um, operations? I guess those would be some of the primary ones I would think yeah. of. Yeah. So. Um, because you brought up uh, safety, uh, people talk a lot about the environmental impact of uh, the construction of pipelines and the environmental impact of uh, operation mm-hmm. of pipelines. What are what are the controversies that surround pipelines? What so are, yeah. I guess in the past, um, Canadians have expressed concerns about these two areas of pipelines, their construction and their operation. Mm-hmm. So on the construction side, we've seen farmers in the 1960s and 70s and 80s raise concerns about the effects of pipeline construction on their land. So the southern pipelines in Canada tend to cross through agricultural regions of the country right. in the prairies and in southern Ontario. And there were concerns um, at the time, as uh, especially on the interprovincial system as it expanded, that construction operations were damaging um, farmland. Right, okay. In the north, in the 1970s, um, there were proposals for the construction of um, a natural gas pipeline in the Mackenzie Valley, and there were concerns that the construction of that pipeline would disrupt um, migratory routes of wildlife. Um, and disturb hunting economies. So in communities in the north where people uh, rely more on hunting for food, um, there were concerns that pipeline construction would disrupt that. Operations have raised their own concerns as well over time. So once the pipelines are built, um, they also pose some environmental risks. The most prominent being from uh, uncontrolled releases of energy products from the pipeline. In the case of a liquid hydrocarbon pipeline, you're looking at oil spills. And there were concerns in the 70s and 80s in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Ontario about the effects of oil spills on agricultural land. So again, agriculture is a concern in the south. Uh, in the north, there's concerns about the effects on vegetation and wildlife okay. um, for those resources. Natural gas pipelines and liquefied natural gas pipelines have different risks in terms mm. of their operations when they have uncontrolled uh, releases of energy products, yeah. they tend to explode right. um, or have a higher risk of exploding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those can lead to um, destruction of property and death. And we've had um, a handful of examples um, across Canada's 20th century history of uh, large-scale natural gas pipeline explosions and liquefied natural gas pipeline explosions that have killed employees, pipeline companies, and damaged property of uh, communities okay. uh, that live on the rights of way. And is that a... Uh, not to like uh, you know defend the idea of the pipeline, but is, is that a like that's not a, that kind of challenge is is just a challenge of transporting 
natural gas or something like that. Is mm-hmm. it not? Like that's not that's not exclusive to a pipeline. That's just the the nature of moving that that element around. Yes, trains can explode, yeah. trains can leak as well. Yeah. Trains can have accidents and right. derail. Well, I'm I'm of the right age to have been evacuated from Mississauga when there was the train derailment and everybody was worried that all of Mississauga was going to blow up. I remember yeah. I lived in Barrie yeah. with my grandmother for 2 weeks. So you're right. So, Those are yeah. symptoms of the transportation of hazardous material. Yeah. And I think that's something to keep in mind when comparing different methods of transportation, all of them involve risk because it's a risky thing to move a hazardous material right. in that volume right. across vast distances. And of course, the, the flip side of that is that if you are in a place where a pipeline is going in, now you're going to be living with that risk because that pipeline is... Is right, not going to move anywhere else. Just as you if know. your house is built next to a railway, yeah, you're exactly. living with the risks of whatever's transported yeah. along that railway. Or if you live on a coast that has an oil tanker route, um, as you know, communities around where the Exxon Valdez spill occurred mm-hmm. um, faced. What are some uh, some notable like successes and failures of pipeline construction in Canada? Okay. So this is an interesting question that I've been thinking a lot about. Success and failure in pipeline development. And success yeah. and failure in any kind of large-scale, complex, enviro-technical system. Um, they're not always the opposite of one another. Right. Okay. Uh, in some cases, failure is a symptom of success. And we can see that in the case of oil pipelines. So looking over the course of the second half of the 20th century, from the mid-20th century to the 1990s, we've got data of how many times federally regulated oil pipelines had uncontrolled releases of crude oil. Right. And there's a little over 500 incidents that are recorded from the from about early 1960s to the mid-1990s. The total volume of oil is in the tens of millions of, of liters of oil spilled into the environment. Some of the largest spills exceed 5 million liters in a single event. Some of them have led to uncontrolled fires, deaths, damage to uh, agricultural land, destruction of habitat for wildlife. So all kinds of adverse environmental consequences. Mm -hmm. And we would look at each of those events as failures. But the system itself is actually highly efficient from an economic point of view. The volume of oil that is successfully shipped to refineries on most of these oil pipelines is very high. Across that period from the 60s to the 90s, it exceeds 99% successful delivery. Okay. But if you're shipping in a single year 67 billion liters of oil and you lose 0.01% of oil into that's, the environment. Yeah, that's actually that a pretty significant tens number. tens of millions of liters of oil yeah. released into the environment. So the system of oil transportation in North America and globally has been engineered and designed to be highly economically efficient, but it has a low tolerance for a small percentage of uncontrolled releases. Mm-hmm. Of course, this makes a lot of sense for the companies. Loss of product is a loss of profit. And so pipeline companies had an economic incentive over the 20th century to develop new technologies, monitoring systems, safety procedures to try and reduce the number of incidents. But there has always been a minimum threshold of acceptable releases. Right. Now, a company would say no releases are acceptable, but no pipeline company has ever achieved 100% right. successful delivery rate. You can bring it down to as close as possible. The issue environmentally is that the environment has a threshold of acceptable damage that it can incur. Right. And once we start shipping billions of liters of oil by via pipelines, a very fractional percentage of failure, which is a symptom of the success of this highly efficient system, right. can produce innumerable environmental harms. 
So I wanted to ask about the future of pipelines. Like, are we seeing pipeline technology changing? Is there something else on the horizon? The way that the pipeline replaced the barrels of oil on a raft in the river, you know, do we see something mm-hmm. coming along to, to replace pipelines? Well, I'll give a cop-out answer to say that I'm a historian and I'm <laughs> focused largely on what has already happened um, and can That's say fair. a little bit less about what might happen in the future, but I can say something about what has changed okay. over time yeah. um, in Canada, at least when we're thinking about pipelines. And it seems pretty clear in the longer view of the past 60 to 70 years that the politics of pipeline development have changed considerably and civil society's attitudes to energy pipelines have changed. So since the mid-20th century, when pipeline corporations started building these large-scale trunk pipelines in Canada, there's always been civilian or citizen resistance to pipelines. Um, But that resistance was highly localized in the past. There's evidence in the 1950s of indigenous communities requesting that pipelines be rerouted around their reserves when they were proposed to be constructed through reserves. There's evidence of farming communities um, protesting or resisting construction of pipelines through their property. The issue was highly localized to where the pipeline was being built. By the 1970s, awareness of onshore oil pipeline spills was a little bit higher in Canada, and you start to see a little bit more regional mobilization in certain provinces, particularly among agricultural communities, and in the north, where indigenous communities started to formally mobilize against proposals for oil pipelines and natural gas pipelines in the 70s and 80s. Today, the discussion about oil pipelines and the politics of oil pipelines is nationalized and globalized. Yeah in part because the environmental issues surrounding them address national and global issues, primarily around global warming. Um, And those were not the environmental issues that activists in the 70s and 80s, the farmers in southern Ontario, were not talking about global warming. They were talking about explosions and oil spills and damage to their land during construction. Indigenous people in the north weren't talking about carbon emissions when they were opposed to the Mackenzie Valley gas pipeline. They were concerned about the impact of the pipeline on wildlife in the north. Right. Today, the environmental mobilization against pipeline construction is largely driven by concern about a global environmental issue, and that has changed the terms of pipeline politics in Canada and the United States and other parts of the world. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. Um, Thank you. If people were looking for you on the internet, where would they find you? Uh, you could find me at seancourage.com. It's spelled just as it sounds. Awesome. Thank you so much again. Interact helps Canadians access their funds their way. Products like Interact Debit and Interact eTransfer have made money mobile, taking it from the confines of traditional banking and ushering it into the digital age. As consumers adapt to new technology, so does Interact. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. 